these aren't these aren't companies we buy stuff from. They're companies who create the places in which we live. And that's a very different dynamic than like somebody who, you know, I'm buying pants from when when it's a when it's in many ways the the spaces on which uh the the public discourse is had and in places in which I sort of feel like I live my life. You said it in a really profound way is like, this is where you live now. <laughs> you know, like this is yeah. how you're experiencing the world. This is how you're developing your point of view. We're gonna eventually realize that these companies are more than companies and in a way they are their own governments. You know, sort of totalitarian autocracies, like capitalist autocracies. Emperor Zuck like, presiding yeah. <laughs> over his 2.2 yeah. billion yeah. subjects saying today mm -hmm. you will see this and you will like it and it will be good. <laughs> it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the alpha creative novelist, original vlogger, educator to millions, <laughs> Mr. Hank Green, welcome, Hank. Hello, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I I'm excited to have you because I gotta say, when I was looking at your exploits, I was like, oh my gosh, like how did one man produce so much content over this period without <laughs> losing his gourd? And perhaps the most impressive thing about it to me is, is the novelist part, where you have a second book that's coming out mm -hmm. next week uh, called, yep. I believe, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. That's correct. And to me, this is the most creative uh, or most impressive because to write a full-fledged book and then another book on top of everything else you're doing just seems to me to be such a daunting task. Uh, you know, plus it, you're a dad on top of it. You've got like a, a boy who's turning four this year, I believe. Mm -hmm. and, and I know what that's like. I mean, uh -huh. <laughs> like, 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 they're like... Yep. You know, just like whirling dervishes of, of energy. Uh, uh, He's great. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, just tell us about your book, because it, it seems like a really great veiled commentary on some of the biggest issues of our time, <laughs> despite the fact that it's uh, a novel um, directed mm. primarily at young people, I get the sense. Um, I... I don't feel like it's a young person book in any particular way. The, the main characters are in their 20s. Um, the first book, they're, they're just out of college. The second book, they're a little older. So I, I, thought, and, of myself, I thought it to myself as like YA. <laughs> you yeah, you, you yeah. could like dig me for that. Though it seems and much I, more elevated intellectually. Yeah, and I definitely like I I want it to be accessible to to those people because I think that they are gonna be making a lot of the decisions that are gonna like basically be the ones that really truly decide what the internet is gonna be, and uh, and that even I you know someone who when I was first you know I got my first email address when I was in high school um, very different lifestyle for the kids now who are on TikTok, and um you know it, I do not really know how I write find time to write a book because it is like a huge amount of time that goes into the thing. Um, but it's really rewarding and a really interesting way to look at, at like the big hard problems that I don't really know how to interface with every day. And the, the both of the books are sort of near future science fiction. Um, the world is different than, than our world, but it, it, in most ways it is the same. And, 
you know, the first book was really an attempt to like, like for me to like examine and, and, and come to terms with how the internet can affect individuals and has affected me and like what this kind of low level new kind of internet celebrity means what should be done with it? How should it be thought of? How should it be treated? And then the second book, I was able to go much broader and, and sort of ask bigger questions about what is what do these platforms mean for everyone, for, for the world, for society, for culture, and for our future. And really wanted it to be a look at what I, I you know, worry the world might look like in five or 10 years as these platforms continue to amass a lot of power. Well, that is front of mind for many people right now where you have this major advertiser boycott of Facebook commencing in mm -hmm. July that includes mm -hmm. Coca-Cola, Unilever, I think Pepsi mm -hmm. just joined. Some of the mm -hmm. biggest advertisers in the world are saying, hold up, there's something going on with Facebook yeah. that we are not happy about. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think the issues you're identifying uh, are super central and, and relevant right now and I would love to, to unpack them with you because I've been attacking the same problems from a policy yeah. perspective. It's yeah. like the, 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 that we can see that there are these trends that are developing or that are here with us right now that are really negative for our democracy, for our mental health, for mm -hmm. the economic incentives of how we receive and process information. Absolutely. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the impact is tearing us apart in various ways. It's making mm -hmm. our kids anxious and depressed. Uh, mm -hmm. It's making it so that we can't trust each other or what we're seeing or reading. So if you have something that should be completely apolitical, let's call it wearing masks during a pandemic, <laughs> that, that somehow yeah. now we're capable of politicizing any, yeah. uh, any stance at all. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you may think we should wear masks, but I don't think we right. should. And my perspective is just as good as yours. Yeah, and not, and not only is it just as good, but it's like so vital, and we have to fight for it. And if we and if we let that right be to not wear a mask be taken away from us, then that's the end of like my desire to even be an American anymore. It's 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 wild. It, you know, it's interesting because the first book was written basically to to create a stand-in for something that would be politicized. And that's something in the book is, you know, not something that exists in, in our world, but um, but was immediately politicized, was immediately had sort of like one set of values and and one political, like part of the political spectrum latched on to feeling one way about it and treating it one way and another way, another group treating it, you know, basically the opposite way. And the main character kind of loves the fact that she gets to be drawn into this debate and become influential and she gets to be a pundit and she gets to yell about it on cable news and she like finds her nemeses and she fights against them. And for her, even though this stuff is like deeply vitally important to the human race, it's just fun for her a lot of the time. And that's how she's thinking about it. She's like, she's thinking day to day, not about like how to make the world better, but how to get more views and how to get more engagement and how to how to win the game. And I feel like far too many people right now feel like we are playing a game when, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. I ran for president, as you know, uh, and there was a time when it felt like there are game mechanics at play during the campaign. Oh, for sure. 
yeah. uh, when I called it out as a reality TV show at, at one point on the debates, but then I was still participating in the reality TV show. And for me, it hit home when I did something that was totally random, where I was in South Carolina and there were there's a jazzercise class and there were women doing the Cupid shuffle and then not mm-hmm. wanting to be rude. I was like, okay, like let, let me do it with you and just uh, have some fun. Uh, yeah. And I literally forgot that we had like a journalist in tow um, uh-huh. at the time who just took the video on their phone and then it wound up. And then to me, shockingly, people gave a shit about me doing the Cupid shuffle <laughs> such that it went around the uh, social media landscape. And then it went to mainstream news where I was part of like a, I did a Sunday morning network TV appearance and they used that as like my intro clip um, where it's like, here's Andrew Yang, yeah. he's having fun mm-hmm. on the trail. And I was like, what yeah. the hell is going on? <laughs> where, <laughs> where yeah. I'm literally running on this whole big set of ideas that obviously like, you know, I, I uh, think is vitally important for our nation's future. And it's like, but that doesn't matter. You know what matters? Like you, yeah. Cupid shuffling uh, in South Carolina. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's like some legitimacy to this. And you've talked about it a, a little bit on the podcast before that, you know, people believe stories and like, we want to find stories that we fit into and we want to find stories that other people fit into. And so if, if you know, that's kind of a lot of what politics is, is like trying to tell a story around your opponent and tell a story around yourself and make those the most compelling stories and more compelling than their stories. Because and, and like, this is a shame to some extent, but but also, you know, this is a democracy and most people do not have anything like the amount of time that you and I have to think about this stuff. And so we need simplifying stories. We need ways for people to be engaged and informed and to, and to you know, w- without having to spend 40 hours a week on it. And, uh, and so like, you know, to some extent, it's like this is this is terrible and and very concerning. And to some extent, like those things do have to exist. We just have to be as citizens really aware of how stories function and and wary of uh, how how they're going to be used to manipulate us. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. 
So if we look at these social media platforms, we say, okay, there are serious problems with them. And I have a few policy proposals that I put out on the trail. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we launched the data dividend project, which I, I just had this long meeting about. And here's where it gets interesting is where uh, this is the story we're trying to tell to your point is like story one, when you say to the average American, hey, your data is yours and you should have data dignity. It's about like human autonomy mm -hmm. and free will. And then an American will hear that and be like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, but then they, they but they won't really do anything. I mean, it's like just click on I consent. Uh, you know, use these platforms and just uh, ignore it and hope for the mm -hmm. best. Because like you said, I don't have any time. Yeah. I'm busy. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'd rather trade my con my convenience for my privacy any day. I'll yes. take that deal. <laughs> so that was story one. And a number of people have tried that story and it yeah. has not gone anywhere. Yeah. And then we looked at it and said, okay, you know what our story is going to be? They are making tens of billions of dollars a year off of you and your data Shouldn't you mm -hmm. get some of that? Why don't we just mm -hmm. get you this data dividend? Sign up here and we'll go fight for your right to get paid mm -hmm. for your data. And yeah. so I'm very excited about that because I think that's a winning story. And uh, we, we've now had um, tens of thousands of people sign up um, in, in the first week and we were mm -hmm. fighting on that side. And then there were some people that came back and said, hey, that isn't the policy goal you should have of people getting paid for their data because they're not going to get paid enough and it, you know it's still going to continue some of like the darker issues that i think you are driving at um in your book and i looked at it i you know looked at it and was like so you don't want us to try and get people paid for their data because you think there's like a better policy that frankly yeah. i wouldn't even necessarily disagree with like if, if you gave me the power to pass like a better data rights policy mm -hmm. that made it so these practices were off the table like i would be thrilled i would sign that but yeah. you know like right now that's not feasible like, you know, like congress is not going to take that up so in the meantime let's like try and activate people around this um so i i hear what you're saying that like a lot of what we're engaged with is different appeals different stories different storylines mm -hmm. uh thinking that somehow we're going to be communicating purely on a rational basis uh, is silly, I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the, I think that there is a story to tell around rationality for sure, and I think that that will resonate with some people and not with others. And that's what happened with my campaign, Hank. Where, like, I started out communicating very rationally, and I think it attracted yeah. a particular tribe <laughs> of uh -huh. people. Yeah. Now that uh -huh. tribe was less than fifty-one percent. So then we we were looking around, being like, okay, like. How can we try and get someone else to join yeah. this, this we've tribe? Got, we've got all the people we're going to get with this strategy. So let's expand the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was one of the, the things that I was engaged with. Uh, but to, to push a little bit further. So if you were in the room with, let's say, members of Congress or the president or something, and they were just and I'm, I'm going to play act. Um, as Joe Biden, let's say, maybe mm -hmm. I'll, I'll pretend to be Joe. Sure, why not? Um, it'll be it's easier than the alternative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's gonna be Joe, as <laughs> yeah. people know. So, uh, so Joe looks at you and says, "Hank, uh, congratulations. My, um, you know, grandchildren are fans of yours. Uh, what should we do about these social media platforms uh, to improve things uh, for the next generation?" Well, 
I mean, this is so the first thing I think is that there are antitrust concerns here. I don't think that YouTube and Google should be the same company. I don't know that Google and Android should be the same company. I don't think that AWS and Amazon should be the same company. Like that to me feels like there's just too much consolidated power there. And it's interesting because like I know some of the people high up at YouTube fairly well. I think that they're really good people. And I think that they believe that what they are doing is the right thing for the world. But what I don't believe is that any unelected leader should have as much power as they have. And 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 it's not power over the government, it's power over our lives. And and so I think that we need to make space for there to be competition here. And if there are if there is a, a great deal, if there are these moats that are created by these companies, like and maybe the 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 antitrust isn't just breaking up, or maybe it's it's something other than breaking up where, you know, you prevent companies from buying competitors, which used to be a thing. Like this used to be rules around this. You, you can't have them buy competitors to put them out of business um, or, and you also just like can't, can't like just sort of like gobble up the people who are going to take your market share because like we need more than one and we need more than 10, ideally, different companies in this so that they can innovate different ways. They can create platforms that are going to appeal to different types of people there and, and like create, um, you know, tools that they wouldn't have thought of and that are going to be better for folks. Now, obviously, there are network effects when it comes to this stuff. Like I upload stuff to YouTube, not because I think it's the best video platform, but because that's where the eyeballs are. And I, I'm never going to change that until the eyeballs are somewhere else. But I think that there are ways to open that up and um, and and create. And so I, I think that's that's the first thing is to say, how do we re- like recreate a competitive landscape here? And whether that's breaking them up like we did with uh, the, the bells or whether it's, um, you know, creating some kind of uh, forces against monopoly, because right now, like it's great for their stock prices like but like th- there's no doubt in anyone's mind that these companies are building really big moats and that they're getting you know and, and they're they're building moats not just around sort of customer interactions but in in some cases what i'm starting to imagine is more citizenship interactions where we don't these aren't these aren't companies we buy stuff from they're companies who create the places in which we live and that's a very different dynamic than like somebody who you know, I'm buying pants from when when it's a uh, when it's in many ways the the spaces on which uh, the the public discourse is had and in places in which I sort of feel like I live my life. Uh, th- that's actually a great observation where people I think think to themselves, well, what's the big deal? Like I go on these things and you know they they reach me with ads, but you said it in a really profound way is like this is where you live now (laughs) you know like this is how you're experiencing the world this is how you're developing your point of view your worldviews and your values and like your relationships you know i have many many friends who i know entirely through social media and have never met in the real world i started a business that is now like a you know makes millions of dollars a year with a guy who i did not meet until for like five years into running the business with him and uh, not not in, in the real world, I mean. And that, like, the, I, I really do think that, like, it, we're going to eventually realize that these companies are more than companies and in a way they are their own governments. And that, like, the board of Facebook and Cheryl 
and and Mark are like the government of that company. Like they're the leaders and that we need to, you know, like there are different ways to exert pressure on them. And like there's internal ways, like their employees and there's advertisers, which we're seeing now. There's actual regulations from the government. There's also pushes from users and pushes from pushes from like the creators who are, you know, really big on the platforms. We need to start thinking about how we af- like affect the the governance of those companies because they govern the spaces in which we live. And and imagining and I do this, you know, in the second book pretty obviously, imagining that these places are are not companies but they are in a way countries is and they are countries that are you know sort of totalitarian autocracies like capitalist autocracies emperor like presiding yeah. <laughs> over his 2.2 billion yeah subjects saying today mm-hmm. you will see this and you will like it and it will be good <laughs> yeah and and like the the algorithms now are extremely sophisticated but i think they're nothing like what they're going to be in 10 or 20 years and when I talk to like well-meaning uh, business leaders in Silicon Valley who are running these big companies and, and have a lot of, you know, maybe more influence than they realize they have, um, I, I kind of want to ask them, like, not just like, how do you make sure you do this right? But how do you make sure that once you've consolidated this much power in one place, the person who takes over after you're gone, how do you make sure they do it right? How do you make sure in like 50 years when you know, Facebook looks a lot sort of older and stodgier and it's sort of like on its, you know, maybe on its way out, maybe they're competitors and they're trying everything they can to to keep that shareholder value increasing. Like, what does that world look like? Not just what does the world now look like? And they don't really tend to respond well to that question. I think it kind of scares them to think 50 years in the future. That's a great question for them. You know, like that time scale is foreign, I think, to Silicon Valley in part because, you know, how old is that company now? Maybe, right? Maybe 20 years old. Yeah. And uh, what you said earlier about the fact that this is bad for innovation is objectively true. I mean, if, if you were to start a company today and say, we're mm-hmm. going to be the next Facebook, like you'd never get any money. No. But But if you were to say... <laughs> we're going to get bought by Facebook, then yeah. an investor would look at it and being like, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> they look at it and say, uh, that's and, the business model. Yeah, uh, that that's the new business model in Silicon Valley. It's not even uh, to be truly a viable competitor like Hewlett Packard starting the garage and like become this massive mm-hmm. public company. It's more like if we play our cards right, we can squeeze 600 million out of Google and then we mm-hmm. all go home happy and, and some people get absorbed into into the uh, Google mm. mothership. And you're 100% right that we used to have rules around some of these things. We used to look at it and say, you know what, you're buying that company, not a good idea, because, mm-hmm. you know, it would just take you to, to uh, too much market dominance. And right now, the markets these companies operate in are quite ill-defined, where if you look at Google and Facebook, they are built on advertising and our data and attention. That's where most of their money is. But Google in particular has companies in everything, you know, they had like the alphabet umbrella and then they they can Mm -hmm. work on satellites and uh, self-driving cars and and, uh, all of the apps that we use that then end up feeding Mm -hmm. into the the data uh, and algorithms. So that there, uh, there's a huge place for us trying to apply some kind of 21st century antitrust framework. But the single most obvious thing would be like, guess what? You can't just gobble up every tech company 
insight that is, yeah. is anywhere touching your space. Like you're going to have to get that stuff cleared by us. And, and they just have so much money. They have more money than they know what to do with. Like the, you know, like they can buy back their own shares or they can buy other companies. What else? Like the, and it's a little disappointing because to some extent, like it felt like for a while that Google was a lot more, you know, just try everything and go hard. And it feels like they're pulling back from that strategy um, in favor of, you know, sort of like concentrating on their core competencies. And uh, instead of being internally innovative, um, just sort of like making Android better, making Gmail better, making search better. Well, most yeah. people don't understand just how vast the resources available. Maybe they do now. But if you are a startup and you're doing your thing and then they just come and plunk down like, hey, here's 800 million in Google mm -hmm. stock or Facebook stock, yeah. you're literally going to be legally obligated to take it in some cases. Like yep. you're like there'll be investors being like, hey, FYI, like this deal is getting done. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, like they they almost have their own currency they could use. It's like Facebook yeah. bucks in the in the form yeah. of their stock because they're worth 650 billion dollars. So right. literally if they were to do a six billion dollar acquisition, which is bigger than they'd have to do, uh, mm -hmm. like 600 million is something like a tenth of one percent of their value so they can actually make yeah. those moves and well and they don't they don't even have to spend the money because capital is so cheap right now that like loans for Facebook and Google are basically free money so they could just they could just buy it with money they don't even have and it's not like any bank in the world doesn't want to loan these companies money they have a hundred billion dollars in cash on the books they can pay back the loan yeah, they 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 have their own money machine. It's wild. Yeah. Like uh, Facebook's revenue is 70 billion and you know, it's like I mean that that's all going going uh, not all of it, but most of it's going to the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> like Google it's I think 160 billion. Uh, yeah. so the mechanics of these companies really are unlike anything we've seen before. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with companies making oodles of money. Um, but when it starts creeping into a zone where they're actually controlling the way people live, perceive reality, think, mm -hmm. vote, uh, interact with each other, um, it, it's it's impinging our ability to actually have reasonable conversations, live healthy lives, and mm -hmm. solve society's problems meaningfully. Because Facebook, to, just to keep uh, using them because everyone understands them, uh, is like Facebook's economic incentives are furthered by us like uh, being pitted against each other. <laughs> like it's actually better for yeah. them if, if you have more sensationalist points of view that get people ginned up uh, and it makes it harder for, uh, for us to actually get anything done. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little terrifying when you think like um, the uh just the, the the lack of regard for which emotion someone might be experiencing as long as it increases the engagement on the platform but it's also terrifying to think the opposite thing that like facebook would care what emotion i'm experiencing and try to have me experience a particular one and like i think right now facebook's like whatever works we'll do that uh whatever people like to share whatever people like to click on but if facebook you know, has also said a little bit of like, well, what if in, in YouTube too, like what if we think about, you know, the people's overall well-being on these platforms, then it's like, okay, so you're saying you're gonna have an algorithm that's designed to affect 
overall levels of joy, of happiness, of satisfaction. And that's like, to some extent, like, I don't know, like, is that good? But also like super potentially terrifying and dystopian if you imagine these places not as companies, but as countries. They actually released some research that said, hey, FYI, we make people sad. <laughs> and and, and, that, and that they, they also uh, released some research being like, hey, we tweaked the algorithm and we found that it increased sadness. <laughs> and, and so like, and like, like yeah. they, they, they literally were like, uh, like it was, it was like this um, not very well publicized release, but like the implication was very, very, uh, disturbing. Never before has there been any way to do this much research on how on human behavior. And the interesting thing is, like, as long as that research is kept internal to Facebook, there isn't a lot that like is is like ethically in terms of like modern you know academic ethics. There isn't a lot that you can say is like kind of not allowed, but if you did the same experiments in an academic setting, it would be like the review board would be like, no way, no way would we allow you to do an experiment on whether like, you know, tweaking an algorithm made people depressed, which might have an like, you know, an ultimate like result of people dying um, if you're doing these experiments on, you know, hundreds of millions of people. So the... Th that power is really amazing. Um, and I don't know that they've even begun to really leverage it. And if they can figure out, like, like what, what really concerns me is that like if Facebook figures out how to make people happy, but then it turns out happy people will use Facebook less. Um, of course, like would, would they do that? Well, th this was something, and I loved how you and your brother got started where you, you had this um, video log where that's the way you communicated and you said, hey, we're mm -hmm. not gonna do all the digital yeah. communications. It's yeah. clear to me that if you were to design a Facebook to maximize our mental health, it would involve less Facebook. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like, like, like it's kind of like, like, like yeah. that. That's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and I, and I sense that it's something that you've balanced over the last, uh, gosh, thirteen years, where you've almost come of age uh, as a creator, like one of the original mm -hmm. digital creators. You've done at this point dozens of uh, of projects in different forms and formats that have reached tens of millions of people in various mm -hmm. ways. And I sense that you also have uh, been trying to reflect and internalize what the heck it means to be someone who uh, is so highly visible. And, and you know, you've, you've almost like become a, a dad and an adult, like in, in so it's not, not quite the public sphere, but, you know, like certainly more visible than probably mm -hmm. was possible at any point in recorded history mm -hmm. <laughs> prior. Uh, yep. And 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 whether that becomes like good or bad for your personal life, your mental health, like that that kind of work. And I'm going to to bring it back to something you said earlier. Do you you must have seen this. So there's like an episode of Black Mirror where uh like this character played by Daniel Kaluuya, I think it was called 10,000 Merits or something where he like rages against the machine and then at the end there were like that was great. Let's give you your own TV show. <laughs> and, and then he winds up in like the thing where, um, where yeah. like, and so that was like dark, but mm. like relatable, uh, where it, it feels like you and I, in some ways, it's like, we're, we're, we're calling out. It's like, look, 
there are real problems with social media and these platforms and the digitization and uh, commodification of ourselves and our content and our data. Um, but then, uh, you know, in my case, I spend a lot of time on social media on any given day. Like you obviously have like built like the, these these tremendous um, followings. And I'll, I'll share with you my personal thing is like, I've actually been trying to figure out how to best balance it with my own uh, mental health, family life, mm-hmm. like parenthood, mm-hmm. being a, a good dad. Um, yeah. And because for me, I was not as highly engaged with it when I was running for president. But when I was running for president, it was like, you know, a, a pretty significant part of like my, my job, my role. Mm-hmm. And then post campaign, um, we've evolved into this other thing where I'm still trying to yeah. make all of the things happen that I was trying to make happen before. But mm-hmm. now I have a different balancing act. And so you've right. been at this for much longer than I have. And I'm uh, I'm just wondering whether you have things to share with other people who are uh, creatives and public yeah. and using social media a lot. I do. Uh, and do I have a book for you? It's, this, is the, this is the first one in the series. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what I was trying to figure out with the first book. And, and I kind of came of age inside of it, but I was 27 when I started doing this. I was I was married. I had had a career uh, already because, like, that's how life works. Um, I'd been a chemist. I'd, you know, I was at that time. I was um, sort of trying to make my way as a writer and a uh, like like freelance like tech help stuff. Um, so it's it's actually been much harder for the friends my friends who had this as their first first job. They were like seventeen years old when they started to get famous on the internet. And it's even harder for people who are sort of not uh, like not white dudes because like there's a lot of like a lot of uh, scary stuff that can happen when you're especially like for, for women on the internet uh, who are you know trying to make their way as a creator. I, I've watched a lot of people be scared off of of platforms, um, and like I've also watched people go through stuff that would definitely have scared me off a platform, but they stuck with it and made it made it happen. Um, so, uh, like I think that there's a there's a lot of different levels of hard to this, but um, but now that like but but like for like where we are, which is that we have other sources of meaning in our lives, and this is one thing I say to creators all the time is diversify your identity. Like this thing that's happening to you right now is gonna feel like the most important thing. And it's really amazing. Like people are giving you so much positive feedback. You, like instead of just having like, you know, the 20 people in your life that you care about telling you that you're worthwhile, you're getting that from 20 million people. And there's no way that those 20 people who actually matter to you can compete with that. But you have to you have to convince yourself that they matter more. And you have to find other ways for for like to value yourself because this thing is extremely volatile. You never know where it's going to go. You never know when you're going to start to hate it or when it's going to start to hate you. And so you like you have to have other other places where you're getting meaning other ways that you believe that you're important in the world and i think that you have that but that's like my number one piece of advice for people who are getting into this and are just starting to be successful because they completely start to disregard all those other parts of their life and this happens in in the book because like it's something i've seen over and over again and i wanted to show it happening where it's just like, nobody can compete with this. Like no one person can compete with this and like, you're holding me back and I'm just gonna, I gotta go. 
I got to get out of this. I, like, I can't, I can't have you in my life holding me back. Has your book been optioned as a movie? Because it sounds like it would be ideal. I took, I, I, uh, I said no to a bunch of uh, that early on because I wanted to finish the sequel before I did it. So it hasn't yet, but it, people were interested, but I said no. Now there's going to be a two-part series. Is there yeah. a, is there a trilogy? Is there like a whole arc? I feel like no. This is it. It's this is the two. This is the two books. So it it was always intended to be two books. Yeah. So now it's going to be a two-part movie. Now the question is: <laughs> Is it going to be combined into one mega film like Lord of the Rings Part One, or is it going to be like uh, yeah, like definitely yeah. two films? I mean, I, I, first of all, it's, it's 2020, Andrew. I don't know if you know, but do films exist anymore? Oh, they exist. Uh, it, they exist. They're just going to... It's gonna honestly the, more likely to... They're going to yeah. take the UV rays and just sanitize the crap out of those sets, man. It's going to yeah. happen. It's happening. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's more likely to be a TV show, honestly, because most things that get... Uh, like, first of all, insight into the novel writing world uh a lot of books get optioned of those like only maybe less than 10 percent actually get turned into something and then um and then like the the process of like whether that thing that like starts being developed actually results in a thing that becomes public it ends up like one percent of novels actually turn into things so probably won't be anything uh but but most things these days are getting turned into tv shows and that was that's where a lot of the interest was in in this book so like a you know like a 12 episode series like two times maybe i have a prediction that this is going to pass and your books are going to be in that one percent of novels that get turned into tv scripted entertainment i would love that now that i'm done with them i just couldn't think about it while i was writing it it was too much um, and I just needed to focus. There would have been like a be George R.R. Like, R. Martin situation. I didn't want to be one of those. I didn't want to be one of those. I, it took me two years and that is as fast as I could have done it. And I'm very proud to have done it. And also that it's getting really good reviews. Um, I was very, you know, I, I think you, it's easy to get into your head and think that, you know, there are a bunch of problems with the book and, and there are, are always issues. But like the first reviews are in and they're very positive. And so I'm I'm fucking gliding right now i'm so happy because it that, that period between when you finish the book and the first reviews come in is very scary yeah the, writing a book is very personal and you feel like you're putting yourself out there and you feel like any judgment about the book is like a judgment on you <laughs> really anything else. like it's a it's a judgment on uh having done it now myself like when when you write a book um it's very, very hard to separate yourself from that book uh, yeah. in terms of what people think about it. Like, if, if they think your book sucks, they say you suck. Well, and this is this is a thing with all, on cre- all online creation now, too, is because, like, the things you're making are so often not, uh, like, not the thing, but they are, like, extensions of you. And that can be really, really scary for people. Well, I'll um, tell you, I'll tell you, man, it, it's not like, because, like, if I made, if I made, I don't do this, but like if I made a, a video and people were like, oh, that video sucked, I'd be like, well, whatever. That video took me like, you know, like yeah. an hour or two. But if like, if, if, if I spent like months and months killing myself over a book and people are like, that book sucked, then it's not like you, you misspent your hour. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it's a lot, a lot. This it is a lot that goes into it. The other thing that I would say, and that I've thinking, I've been thinking a lot about is that like, we get. I think that you and I probably get hyper-focused on productivity to a certain amount, just judging by the amount that you have done, uh, I, I would guess at that. 
And one thing that I've been working really hard on is trying to, to recognize that like a, a, a product I can produce is my own happiness and that counts and that the, the happiness of the people in my life counts as productivity as well. Um, so that's a, that's a piece that I would give to you um, that I, one of the characters in my book realized for me that um, as long as I think of productivity as only including things that are external to me, I will be unhealthy. That is a fantastic principle to live by. That should be like a life principle. Uh, someone's happiness, including my own, counts as productivity. Mm-hmm. Have you named this principle? Uh, I've not. It was, it, was said, it was said by a character in my book. I can't tell you which one because it would be a spoiler. <laughs> Then we should name it right now, Hank. This should be, it should be called like the happiness as productivity principle. Yeah. Like like making yourself or someone important to you happy is productive. Yeah. And I could not agree with you more that that might hold on to it. Yeah. Some people listening to this are being like, like, of course, assholes. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but I completely can relate and agree with, uh, agree with you on this. And the, the most powerful example is your child. So one of my boys is on the autism spectrum and there are times when we're doing something together that is, uh, let's say testing of one's patience or something along those lines. And, Mm -hmm. and then you feel if you're like an efficiency fiend, you're like, Hey, this is like a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to be like, wait a minute, like this is actually perhaps the most productive thing I can be doing because, yeah. you know, it, it's going to, to help um, my son experience the world in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's something that I struggle with. Um, I struggle with not on a daily basis, but like, you know, mm-hmm. every so often, like so I'll be doing something with, um, one of my boys and then I'll have like 15 things like kind of gnawing at my brain where it's like, Hey, you mm-hmm. need to, you know, call this person back or do this or do mm-hmm. that. Um, yep. and, and you, you have to try and say, wait a minute, like this is actually more important than that right now. And I need to start regarding it that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something I struggle with and have struggled with as long as I've been a professional. Um, and that, and I, I'm better at it some months than others. Like it's not, it's a, it's a process, not something that I've like finished with. Oh yeah. You're never done. Yeah. But naming that yeah. principle certainly is going to help. So the name of the book is a beautifully foolish endeavor. And my question for you is, does someone need to have read the first book in order to get the second book? Yes, unfortunately, but the first <laughs> book is also great. <laughs> <laughs> and and in paperback so it's inexpensive uh also we i actually read most of my books now through audiobooks or listen um and uh we work really hard on the audiobooks so that's a format that is very close to my heart and that i take really seriously and don't like a lot of like a lot of I was sort of was surprised to find that my publisher expected that that would be an afterthought to me, whereas it was like... Or the no, central thing. You were like, the audiobook yeah. is the jam. Um, yeah, I, I want to think really hard about how we do that. And the name yeah. of the first book is... An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. An Absolutely yeah. Remarkable Thing. Um, yeah. So the experience of reading your book into... Uh, so did they send you to a studio or do you just have your home studio? Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't record it. I didn't do perform it. 
You mean your first book or your second book or just the second book? I didn't perform either of them. No. You had some freaking other person read your book into audio format? Yeah, no. the book is the book is is read is is from the perspective of a of a 23-year-old woman. I was not going to record it. That makes perfect sense because it was a novel. So, do you know how it was recorded? That did they have yeah. a young female, yeah. or did they have different characters, or how does that work if it's a novel? Yeah. So the first book, uh, so basically the the first book is written as a memoir, um, but of, of a fictional character, and um, and a woman named Kristen C recorded it. She's wonderful, and she did a really good job of tr- like capturing the <laughs> like the main character who's very sort of like. Um, uh, grumpy but funny kind of uh is her her vibe maybe if i get everyone and and the first book um was all from the perspective of one character except for the last chapter which actually i did record because it was from the male perspective and then the second the second one is uh was a lot more fun because we have five different characters who have who have point of view chapters and so they all got to record their own chapters one of those characters is not human, so that was fun to deal with. Um, and uh, and then there's also uh, interstitial bits, so like like they're called epigraphs. So before a chapter would start, just some con- context from the world. And sometimes those, those were like AP articles, but sometimes they were podcasts, like transcripts from podcasts. So instead of like speaking that like, this is a transcript from a podcast, instead we actually like recorded the podcasts as if they were the thing that you're getting from the world. So interesting, man. Yeah, the reason why it didn't hit me that it would make much more sense to have someone else read it um, is that I, I've only written nonfiction books. And so yeah. anytime it was happening, it was like, hey, Andrew, you want to go to the studio? And like, this should only take you two or three days. And, uh, and, I, I, <laughs> and I, I have to tell you that the act of reading your entire book into mm-hmm. a studio, which it sounds like you have not had to do, uh, but they I, just a bit, yeah. But they literally have every herbal tea and lozenge known to man there for you, <laughs> and you're just there, and you're just going to be like reading for eight, ten hours in a row, and yeah. And in my the case, the worst part of sorry, no, 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 fine. And in my case, they were like, "Hey, this is going to take you three days." Um, and I was like, fuck that shit. I'm going to get this done in two days max. Cause yeah. hell if I'm going to yeah. spend three days reading, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I loved my book and like, I was happy to read it and I thought it was important. Like, but like, you know, come on, are you kidding me? Like I'm going to spend like 60% of a work week, like just freaking reading. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah. so, so it, it became like this thing where I was like two days max and like, and, and then the efficiency uh, Fiend in me came out where I was like, why does it take so long? I did some math. I was like, I should be able to get this done. And they were like, oh, it's because of an error rate because it's actually mm-hmm. very hard to read error free like mm-hmm. for that sustained period of time. And I was like, done. <laughs> like, I will make no mistakes. I am Andrew Yang. Yeah, that, that was yeah. like the, that was the <laughs> mentality. <laughs> yeah, the wor- the worst part for me was reading so the chapters I did read. So I I've got a, a bit part in the second book and a whole chapter in the the first book is that I wanted to change things. And I was like, "But I'm allowed. I wrote it. So I can say it differently." And they're like, "No, you have to do it as written." And I'm like, "Who says? I am the author. I get to I can do whatever I want, right?" And uh so there was a bit of contention around whether or not I could change things in the audiobook that 
we're not exactly the same. And I continue to believe that it's fine, like that it's a different experience. It's a different genre. It's a different medium. And that like, and there are a bunch of circumstances where I wrote basically an audiobook version and a textbook version just be, so that like it would make more sense. Well, certainly if you're the creator and you're used to having yeah. your... Uh, materials evolve over and over again, then for you having it be fixed seems so bizarre. You'd be like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, I yeah. can't just tweak this thing, who cares? Um, uh -huh. Yeah, that, that is one of the magical things about books. <laughs> you know, it, it like yeah. becomes sort of engraved as part of the historical right. record. Yeah, once it gets published, it, it, I, I, you know, it really does like it stops becoming a, a, a fluid thing for me. It does lock into a space and become static and, and becomes real in a way that it doesn't until I get the book in my hand. Well, congratulations on the awesome reviews. I'm sure it's tremendous. Uh, and it must be a massive joy to you to be at this stage where the book is done. It's going to get into people's hands. People you like and respect are going to read it and enjoy it. And then yeah, it, it feels really you. good. And all the people that read the first book that want to see what like the next, mm -hmm. uh, the next chapter yes. in the story is yes it is very uh it was very important to me and very exciting to to uh there's a lot of mysteries in the book and to have them all wrapped up at the end feels really good especially when that's been uh that has been denied me by some fiction creators over the years that the uh the mysteries never really wrapped up and i was very uh, very committed to wrapping them up myself. That angers me as well. So kudos to you, <laughs> Hank, because when they try and like have these threads out there and then the threads don't get resolved satisfactorily, uh, it, it's yeah. infuriating because yes. it's like, look, if I invested enough time to give a crap about your stories or your characters, then yeah. you need to have enough foresight to figure out where this is going and not leave me hanging. So, yeah. <laughs> so kudos to you for not being one of those lazy storytellers. They make me so mad, that laziness. Oh, so mad. Been done to me too many times. Yeah, and I, I get it, TV in particular, that like they don't even know yeah. if they're gonna have another season. So they're like, mm -hmm. well, hell if we know if anyone's gonna ever see who killed Sarah <laughs> or whatever, yeah. whatever it is. I just, <laughs> we just need people to be watching right now. That's all that matters, yeah. yeah. And like, I think that that's what it is. Like you you, you open up a mystery because it seems really compelling. And, it, and like the viewer is like, I don't understand how they're gonna fix, how they're gonna make this make sense. And then it's like, oh, they're not. And like part of the reason I was watching is because I wanted it to, is like, yeah, we just like it's a, it's a betrayal. summarized the problem with social media and the problem um. with modern capitalism. <laughs> it's like, it's like, look, all I care about is what mm. number I'm getting right now. And yeah. so like the downstream effects, who cares? And it turns yeah. out we're still going to be there <laughs> like mm -hmm. X weeks from now. And we all care. And you need yeah. to get your arms around what the heck social media and these platforms are doing to like our, our society, our democracy, our mental health, our way of life, our ability to interact with people. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you can't be starting these threads that you don't know where the hell they go. Um, that yeah. Those things yeah. are not of equal importance, but I'm going to, to tie them together. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Agreed. Um, have you been thinking a lot about education lately? Because I have.
Yeah, so I mean, you've produced educational content that has been seen by tens of millions. Uh, you know, you you developed a real knack for conveying concepts in a way that people find fun and engaging. Uh, mm -hmm. And right now, there are so many families and parents who are struggling because their kids all got yanked out of school, and we're mm -hmm. all wondering what the heck is next. Um, so, it would love to hear what you're thinking. Well, I mean, can I ask you first, like? Um, you know, I think that you probably have a pretty, pretty unique perspective on education, also on education policy that I probably don't have. Um, and, and I, I have a lot of fear about what secondary education or like what post-secondary education looks like right now. What do colleges and universities and community colleges look like? Um, you know, if we find that we cannot gather in the same way and like, how do we interface with, with that? with the problems that creates, because of course, education is like so fundamental to the foundation of like all, all of it, like all of society, all of innovation, all of like progress. So post-secondary, many colleges have no choice but to try and reopen uh, in know. September because yeah. their finances are constructed such that if they were to not have a semester, they would go bankrupt and go out of existence. That's true mm -hmm. for many, many schools, including some high-end schools. There are only a handful of schools that have these, you know, big endowments. Uh, and even the schools with big endowments actually are operated in a way such that it would be ruinous for them to not have a fall mm -hmm. semester. Now, mm -hmm. the big question is, how can you charge what you're charging if all of it's online? And a lot of kids are struggling with this right now where some mm -hmm. kids who have a choice, which is not many of them, but uh, are trying to defer because they're like, hell, if I'm going to have my first yeah. year of college be this online bullshit and mm -hmm. spend $60,000 for the privilege of attending class in my jammies and whatnot. Like they're, they're not mm -hmm. into that, mm -hmm. uh, which is understandable. But from, yep. the, from the school's perspective, they're like, the, the show must go on. Like the school must open. Uh, and like many things with the coronavirus, there have been problems building up in the system for decades where our colleges yep. have been doing a lesser and lesser job of actually educating people or preparing them for modern day uh, life or the economy. Especially society. per dollar spent, yeah. Well, so here, yeah. here are the way the numbers work for, the, for these colleges. Uh, if you look at the cost of various things, most consumer goods have remained relatively stable in price. Yeah. Um, books, electronics, clothes, like you don't see the prices going up to the moon. So what are the mm -hmm. exceptions to that? The two big ones are healthcare and education where healthcare just keeps getting racked up and up and up, uh, just mm -hmm. like higher prices to the moon. And colleges every year are like, hey, guess what? We're, you know, 4% more expensive. Uh, and then you like compound that and college now costs two and a half times what it cost even than when I went to college right. or when you went yeah. to school. We're like both mm -hmm. in our 40s and we're probably not that far yeah. apart. So so, yeah. um, so then you, if you're a kid, you're like, okay, I guess college is 50 or $60,000 now or your family. Um, and then does that mean that I get paid more on the way out? No. Turns out opportunity is completely stagnant. And uh, I actually, mm -hmm. if anything, I've gotten rid of a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. So how the heck do I afford to go? I take out massive government loans. And the government's like, don't worry, we've got you. So now we're up to $1.6 trillion in school loans. And families feel like, well, I have no choice but to take it out because it's college. And, uh, you know, uh, my kid's mm -hmm. got to go. The kid's like, well, clearly I'm going to college. And so then they, they go, they get loaded up with this massive debt load. And from the college's perspective, they've been paid. They don't need to adjust particularly. And they just keep ratcheting up the price every year. 
Um, so if you dig deeper and you say, well, why is college so expensive? Why is it that it has to go up in price? It's not professors. It's not even facilities, which most people would guess. It's non-academic administrators. The number of non-academic administrators in colleges have gone up 150% as prices have gone up. Mm -hmm. uh, they just keep on hiring more uh, administrators. Yeah. So, and like a lot of it's like a, like a lot of the money is being spent on sales, basically, like to like we're spending money to make money. And that's just increasing. And like if but if you don't, I, I was watching a friend of mine go through this process. Her kids going to college and like she was like, I got this huge booklet from this university in Alabama. But the University of Montana, I live in Montana. So like the, the local university only sent us like a tiny little pamphlet. And so I just don't feel like, and I'm like, no, don't go to the school that's spending all that money. Like they sent you like a hundred dollars of material out of the blue with, and like, you know, chances are like 90% of those are not going to result in a sale or more than that. So like their customer acquisition cost is going to be astronomical. And that's what you as a student are paying for to acquire new customers for the university. Go to the school that isn't spending money. Like it's spending money on, on teachers, not on, on sales, you know? And so, so yeah, watching and, and, you know, people in academia have watched this happen and they've been, you know, comfortable the whole time. Just watching as school has become closer and closer to not being worth it. And eventually you get to the point where it actually isn't worth it anymore. And for a lot of majors, I think you're already there where it, unless you are, unless you have a ton of money, you're not uh, like, it's not going to be worth it for you to go to school. It's not going to be worth the loans. And like, it's, it's such a, and it's, it's in the same way as healthcare. It's like so depressing because this is like the one, like one of the fields where it's like, this is supposed to be all about helping people. And like, it should be this like really great, good public, good public service job, but like more and more professors kind of can't feel that way because of how much it costs. Right and, there, lucky enough to become professors, man, because you have all of these PhDs who are in like the permanent postdoc adjunct yeah, hell where they're going to get paid subsistence and mm -hmm. there's no future. And it's like, hey, yeah. tough luck. Like, uh, you know, yeah. we just keep minting P PhDs and there are no jobs mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. And the, and, but, and that's, what's keeping the level of like how much professors are uh, cost to university. That's what, that's, what's keeping it level. Lots of professors, lots of tenured professors are making a ton of money, but on average it hasn't increased because you've got all these adjuncts and you've got all these people who are never going to get tenure and just like getting paid very, you know, the basic, basic livings or not, not even a full living. Like the teaching of students is not the primary expense at a lot of these places. Let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> like yeah. they're not exactly pouring the millions into making sure that, yeah. you know, your kid has some world renowned expert teaching them uh, that yeah. it, it's, it's really immoral uh, what's gone on. And it's in the guise of, like you said, like a public good and a nonprofit, in some cases, mm -hmm. literally public institutions, uh, yeah. You know, it, we've really lost our way in so many in so many respects. And education, healthcare, I think, are like the two that affect mm -hmm. the most people that everyone can understand. The, the third one is housing. That's the other source of inflation, mm -hmm. but it's not as extreme as healthcare and education. In mo, in, in yeah. some places it is, but it but still a huge crisis. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's not as extreme in like where you are in Montana. Like there are certain metro areas where it's it's yeah. as extreme or more extreme. Yeah. Yeah, I, and you know, 
what what really frustrates me is I think that like there's no doubt in my mind, and I've always said this as somebody who, te- who sort of teaches uh, through the internet. I've always said that like there is no replacement for the classroom, and like that's not what we're trying to do with Crash Course. We have no interest in that, and I believe that that there's no replacement for the classroom, except that like now you have to. Now, like now you're replacing cases. the classroom. There's like no choice because that that kid must going. replace the. And so like you have to adjust that statement to say like, there's no system that is as good as the classroom, but there are other systems. And if you're going to charge sixty thousand dollars a year for the classroom, and other people can find ways to charge six thousand dollars a year for an education without the classroom, then you lose the classroom, which is the best way to teach people. But you do lose it, like you lost it anyway, and. Uh, because, because we had to find a different way because it just cost too much money. Yeah. This is the crisis that many universities are struggling with right now. And I think that they're going to be able to bear it for one season. Um, though a bunch of the marginal schools will close even now. It's like, Mm -hmm. just like if you look around the country, Thousands of retailers are closing, thousands of right. theaters are closing, tens mm-hmm. or hundreds of thousands of restaurants are closing. I'm mm-hmm. sure hundreds of schools are closing. Uh, not yeah. not the big, wealthier ones or the, the major public ones. Um, mm-hmm. They can stand it for one season, uh, but depending upon how long this drags on for, you're going to see more insolvent schools pretty quickly because mm-hmm. a lot of families are going to look up and say, wait a minute, like this makes absolutely no sense for us to yeah. be paying uh, this kind of tuition. Do you have uh, advice for kids who are graduating right now? I say kids, but they're, you know, I, I mean like uh, getting, like this was their last semester of college. So like, welcome to the job market, it's COVID. <laughs> yeah, th- this is a very hard time to be looking for a job, that is for sure. Uh, And so a a lot of it would be around trying to find any way in which you can contribute and develop that may or may not be in the field that you were thinking of. It might not pay what Mm -hmm. you want. The living situation might not be what you want. Uh, Mm -hmm. But just as long as you're growing at all professionally, uh, you should feel good about it. Like, don't think, oh, Mm -hmm. I I, really want to get into politics. So I have to like make sure it's like the perfect job in that space. Like, no, no, just if you can find anyone that... Um, we'll give you a chance to lend a hand, just freaking go for it. And if that, and that's going to be hard too. just like, even that's easier said than done. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it would be about trying to find ways to make sure you're still uh, developing in some respect, even if you're trapped at home for like a, right. a while, uh, you know, making schedules for yourself, like setting goals for yourself that are achievable, uh, reaching out to people, even when you don't feel like it, because it's it's very easy to become somewhat, of a shut-in, I think, during this time mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. Uh, but you have to continue to try and put yourself out there. Uh, I don't have great advice. Uh, one of the things I will say, though, is that if you have time, like you're in better shape, where like if you're a young person, you'll be able to uh, have this be like an early bump in the road, but it's not going to define your whole journey. Like the, yeah. the people I'm the most concerned about are folks where, you know, they spent... 10 years working on some uh, restaurant or bar food truck that now is like completely kaput, you know, like, like that, that stuff breaks my heart mm-hmm. because yeah, I'm like you, Hank, like I love entrepreneurs. I love people who are actually trying to make something positive happen. And mm-hmm. this crisis is going to do a number on entrepreneurs yeah. uh, to a higher level than if you've got some 
corporate job that lets you work from home. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard and so rewarding when it's working. Um, but when it's not working, it is very hard to, it's very hard to work through failure. Um, and like, not just while it's happening, but afterward. And I think that the important thing to know is like one, hopefully everybody gets that, like, this is no one's fault. Well, I mean, um, that like your failure was not your fault in this circumstance. Um, but, and, and also that like, um, you know that like one of the things one of the really great things about making your own your own project investing in like taking your money and spending it on your dream instead of someone else's is how much you learn and you can take those skills other places and you know management bookkeeping like entrepreneurs do everything and so there there's a lot um like i think that they they are good hires and and also there are other opportunities and other futures and uh, there's going to be a lot of need for entrepreneurs and innovation as we find new ways to operate, um, whether that's about coronavirus specifically or if it's just about the world continuing to change. So we need people with those skill sets. We need people with broad skill sets who are curious and passionate and want to make the world better. Oh, one thing I think you and I can both relate to is that if someone beamed in and looked at me in my 20s, they'd be like, this guy's struggling, you know, like my first company went bust with yeah. another company that uh, ran out of money and like another one didn't achieve its goals. And the rest, I'd be like, what is this guy doing? You know, <laughs> so, so it, it took me <laughs> until I was uh, yeah. 30 or so before I started really hitting my stride in any um, professional growth and momentum. I mean, I was growing, mm -hmm. but it was like growing in the school of hard right. knocks. I was, I was growing by yeah. getting like knocked around. <laughs> so so yeah. it's one reason I try and let young people know it's like, look, you've got a long time horizon because, uh, you know, like for, for me, when I was 25, my first company failed, I owed 100,000 plus in school loans. And so uh, you know, anyone who looked at me at that point would be like, this guy's mm -hmm. sunk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah. like, but, yeah. um, so, you know, like if you have time to recover and build, like, I mean, yeah. young people have more of that than, than most anyone. Yep. Yep. I think as long as you're learning at you're winning. Look, um, look at you now yeah. too, man. I'm sure when someone saw you and your brother like video blogging in 2007, <laughs> you'd be like, "What are these jokers doing? What the hell is I this?" Thought, I thought we were killing it. I thought, I thought, I back then I thought like we were doing something so amazing, and then I look back at like my tax returns from 2007, and I'm just like, "How did I survive? How was I? Well, I guess not how did I survive, but how wasn't I freaked out? Like I should have been freaked out because like making making you know." I just graduated from grad school and I'm making $17,000 a year. And I'm like, why am I not, why am I not more scared right now? But I just, just like, this is going to, this is going to matter. This is going to be a big deal. And I was, I don't know why I believed it, but I did. Well, you, you believed correctly because look at you now, but yeah, it is funny. Those yeah. times when you're like scrapping and scrapping and like, you've got this little kernel of value and then you're like, look at my kernel, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> This yeah. kernel will grow into a mighty popcorn tree or whatever the heck it is. Uh, <laughs> that is how, I, how corn grows. Yeah. Certainly, I felt that way any number of times in my career. I felt that way about the campaign where I was like, look at my little presidential mm -hmm. campaign. It will grow strong and true. Uh, and yeah. and there have been times when I, I in my life, I've been like, look at my little 
dot com stroke of genius like this is going to go someplace and it did not you know oh, yeah. like Same. Yes. <laughs> it'd be like absolutely so when you you hold up like the kernel of value like sometimes it goes someplace great and uh other times it doesn't but you know if if you persist and just keep uh working with good people i know so many friends who like they you know have like a dud except they met someone really cool through their dud and then someone mm -hmm. thought well of them and then called them up and was like hey uh you know right. I'd, i wanted to work with you like let's find something else to do yeah yeah well hank congratulations on everything congratulations first and foremost on being such uh, a world-class creative and force for making our kids smarter and stronger and healthier uh and on the new book that soon to be turned into a tv show on uh, netflix it sounds like i will, I will wish that into the world thanks uh and, and on being a dad and on uh like on reflecting the fact that making yourself and the people you love happy is not just a good thing, but it's actually the ultimate form of productivity. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, impressed by you and all the stuff that you do. Keep up it. Keep keep up the good work. Keep making it happen, man. Yeah. You too, man. All the best to the family. Yeah.